The question that I want resonating in all of our minds this morning is asking ourselves, did we all just sing a lie, or did we mean what we just sang? We've all done difficult things at various times. Are we willing to do the difficult thing we just sang about? Lord, hear my, send me to, to do your work in the world around us. We, we all engage in difficult tasks at times because we know it will be worth it to engage in those tasks. We, we undertake suffering and hardship because we, we set our sights on the end goal. I, I think of my, my daughter-in-law, Maria, at this time. I know many of you have been praying for her as she's been going through a very difficult pregnancy. She's had morning sickness. She's had midday sickness. She's had evening sickness. She's had many days of sickness. And here she is well in almost through her second trimester, and she's still having some of those joy-filled days of sickness. And for her, they are joy-filled days because she recognizes that every day that she is sick is a reminder that the Lord is letting a life grow within her. And she's anticipating the, the coming of that young baby. And the sickness is just part of the process of getting there. Well, ministry can function somewhere in that same way. We can go through difficult things to minister for the cause of Christ. We're all called to serve him. We all just saying that we're willing to serve him, that we want to be used by him. Well, there are a lot of struggles that we'll face to serve Christ. The, the challenges that, that come as we minister to others is remembering that, that the goal of what we're doing makes the struggle worth it. We're, we're continuing our series this morning through Paul's letter to the Colossian church. He wrote this letter during his imprisonment in Rome. Paul is celebrating the transforming work of the gospel by celebrating while he endures difficulties. The gospel centers on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The, the gospel not only saves, but as we've been reminded in this letter, it transforms us. In the first chapter of the letter, Paul's articulated the, the core message of the gospel and reminded his, his readers that the the ministry of this message is what drives his life. His sufferings are worthwhile because they, they serve to further the gospel's transforming work in others. Last week, the, the sentence that we looked at wrapped up the, the first chapter of, of this letter, and that sentence was largely a testimonial from Paul. We're certainly not Paul. We are not sitting in a Roman prison. None of us sat in prison this past week that I'm aware of. At least none of you called me for bail money, so I'm assuming that, that none of us have endured prison this past week. Still, we observed last week that we can learn from, from Paul's example regarding how we should live our lives. We are reminded that we have a stewardship responsibility. We've been entrusted to magnify Christ, and we've been given gifts to use for that purpose. We're to use our abilities, we're to use our resources, all for the sake of joyfully magnifying Christ, as we say above me. We also were reminded last week that we will stand and give an account to God for how are we doing with what we've been called to use for that purpose. This morning, we're going to look at the next sentence in this letter. The very next sentence that Paul wrote, the, the first three verses of, of chapter 2. And they really continue this testimonial of Paul. He's talking about his life. Paul continues to talk about himself, 
Specifically, he's talking about why he does what he does. Why he endures what he endures. Last week, as I said, we recognized that, that we have a stewardship that's very similar to Paul. Well, this week we need to see that, that we also have a very similar purpose to Paul. I've already mentioned that these verses form a single sentence. That, that means there's one overall idea in them. My, my plan this morning is to, to trace this idea by, by developing a, a single parallel thought for us. The, the idea that I want us to develop is, is rather lengthy. So we're going to build it step by step as we work our way through our text. Let's start, though, by just reading our verses. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul writes, For I want you, to the Colossians again, of course, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knitted together in love and attaining all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The idea that I want to build from these verses, as I said, is, is rather lengthy. But the first part of the idea is not. Our, our idea begins with, with a core thought. We struggle for all believers. That's the nucleus of the idea that we're developing this morning. That's the nucleus of Paul's idea. The first thing to notice there in verse 1 is Paul says that he is engaged in a great struggle. And he uses that word struggle. That, that's a word that, that means an intense strain. It's a word that's used to describe the, the kind of effort that you put into running and winning a, a race. It's a word that's used to describe the, the effort that, that's put in to engage in a fight or a battle and to stick with it until it's over. It describes facing opposition. It carries the idea of intentionally engaging and enduring in something that's exhausting, something that's unpleasant. In Paul's case, he goes and takes this word and then he adds to this idea, this, this word that means intentional, exhausting, unpleasant. He goes and adds the word great. Great struggle. In other words, Paul says, I'm not engaged in something that's middle of the road, life is a bit challenging kind of an affair. He says, this is, I will hold on at all cost kind of affair. It's a great struggle. Yet notice Paul is not enduring this kind of struggle, this long sleepless nights taking on great risks, in enduring suffering kind of struggle that he's engaged in. He's not enduring this so that he'll benefit personally. He's not doing this so that he'll be a wealthy guy. He's not working so that he'll achieve name recognition through his efforts. He's not in a Roman prison because he is overreached in his seeking a personal glory. He's not struggling for his own fame or fortune. Paul says he's struggling for the Colossian believers. He's struggling on their behalf. Remember, Paul's never met these people, or at least not most of them. Paul 
has probably met a few of them. He was in Ephesus, which is not real far away, for several years, three years he was there. He, he knows Epaphras, their, their pastor. He, he probably knows a few of them if they traveled to Ephesus for business or whatever they may have encountered. But by and large, he doesn't know the people making up this church. The church was largely composed of personal strangers. Still, Paul, Paul says he sent this letter along to this church because he is enduring a struggle for them. He's enduring the struggle for them, and then he adds, and for the believers in Laodicea. Laodicea is another city, a city about 10 miles away, and another one Paul has not personally been to the church, so he doesn't know many of them, even though if he might know a few, we don't know. But Laodicea, like Colossae, is largely a church composed of strangers, from Paul's perspective, Yet Paul sent a letter to the church in Colossae. He also sent a letter to the church in Laodicea. We know because it's mentioned in this letter that a letter went to them, the church in Laodicea as well. He's just as concerned about the believers there as he is in the believers in Colossae. He's struggling for all of them. Well, what we can learn from this first verse here in our text this morning, this first part of this long idea is that we too should have a concern for all believers. Any and all Christians fall within the scope of our concern. The, the breadth of that scope, being concerned for people we've never met, that immediately distinguishes us from the world at large. Think about it. It's normal for us to have concern for people close to us. I mentioned my daughter-in-law, Maria. It's normal for me to have concern for my daughter-in-law. It's not normal for you to be praying for her. If our family members have a problem, we're concerned. We'll, we'll phone them and we'll check on them frequently. If it's a close personal friend, we'll, we'll respond the same way. In fact, I'd encourage you this morning, look around. Obviously, there's a number of our church family not here. It's normal for us to be concerned for one another, so call them. Check on them. See how they're doing. See what's going on. I know personally that several of our church members are struggling in different ways. That's not unreasonable. What is unexpected is that we'll call and check on someone who, who's going through a hard time that we've just read about in the paper. We don't do things like that. In fact, I'm not even suggesting that we should do stuff like that. That's not what Paul's doing, and that's not what I'm suggesting. The point that Paul is making is different than that. How does what Paul is saying pertain to us? The point Paul is making is that all believers, Christians everywhere, are family. So we need to see them as such. All believers fall within our concern because we see all believers as family members. When we hear about Christians in a sister church facing challenges, we are concerned. When we hear about Christians in another country facing challenges, we are concerned. When you hear about my daughter-in-law facing a problem, or we hear about Elle's son receiving a, a joyful conversion, we're concerned because all believers are within the scope of our concern. Yet the statement on the screen is not, we are concerned for all believers. What does it say? We struggle for all believers. 
our concern must move us to engage on behalf of others, to engage in struggles on behalf of others. We, we must exert ourselves. We must strain intensely. We must help to meet the needs of others however we can meet their needs. I'm sure we've all can think of examples where we've strained for family members or close friends. Suddenly we receive a phone call that something urgent has come up. There's a, a dire need. I, I can remember when my, I don't remember, David, if it was you or Katie, one of them called and they'd had a car accident on I-75 and they needed us to come pick them up. Did I check my calendar to see if I was free at the moment to do that? No! We, we drop everything and go because there's an urgent need. That's the idea here. Our Christian life is expected to involve intense effort for other believers. Whether we know the believers or not, every believer is family. When we hear of a need and we have the ability to help, we have a drop everything kind of mindset and engage. We will help doing whatever we can, even if doing so presents a struggle for us personally. We struggle for all believers. That is the beginning of the idea that, that Paul develops here. Our, our struggle for all believers is, is one we must have, but it must have a purpose as well. The struggle for all believers has a purpose, and we see that purpose as we consider the first part of verse 2. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity. To pursue corporate unity. If you think about it, we could struggle on behalf of others for a lot of things. The, the most natural would be struggle to remove the difficulties that others are facing. That's why I jumped in the car and went to pick them up when they were stuck on I-75. I wanted to remove their, their difficulty my children there when they were stuck. Most of the time, our struggles for others really do fall in that category, dealing with some immediate temporal type concern to somehow make their lives easier in some fashion. And I'm not suggesting that is wrong. Yet Paul's main reason for struggling for others is not so that others will have an easier life. Look at verse 2. I'm doing these things that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love. Paul's purpose involves their unity. His struggle is for their unity. He's working, he's struggling so that they will be united together in love. How hard do we work for unity? Is our corporate unity something that, that we consider worth straining to ensure? We're much more prone to see ourselves as free individuals than as a unit in Christ. That's one of the problems of growing up in America is our fierce individualism that's part of our corporate culture that we have as Americans. So we see ourselves as free-floating individuals. It's not natural to see ourselves as a unit in Christ. We see ourselves free to come and go at will in our church affiliations. If someone leaves our church, we, we quickly get over it and just move on. If we get offended about something, we too are, are quick to, to just leave and move on. 
Yet Paul sees unity as worth pursuing. The word he uses, the word we have translated in the New American Standard as may be encouraged, is a word that, that refers to urging or imploring, exhorting. It has that idea along with being containing the idea of, of comforting those who are distressed, urging or imploring those who are distressed to be comforted. So rather than having a, a situation create endless anxiety, the, this word speaks to experiencing peace. And that peace comes through the connection, Paul says, that we have to one another, that we're knit together in love. Paul's urging the, the creations of connections with one another. He's urging corporate unity. That's why I said, look around and see who's missing. Call them, because that will build corporate unity. When you call someone and says, you know, I'm concerned. I didn't see you this morning. What's going on? What's happening in life? Or maybe you know what's going on. You know, for example, Charlie Fox was in the hospital and just got out. It's reasonable that he's not here this morning. Well, call them and see how they're doing. Folks, forming connections with one another is worth struggling for. It's not easy because it does mean that both sides of the relationship must overcome our natural tendency that we have towards individualism. We, we can't do it without the other person helping us. It also requires prioritizing our pain, or I mean our unity over pain. It, it requires placing love over rights. That, that means, what I'm saying is, when someone does something that offends us, we, we deal with the issue rather than, than walk away from the person. We, we either overlook the offense in love and just put it out of our minds completely and say it doesn't matter, love covers a multitude of offenses, or we work through the offense with that person by going to them and, and dealing with the issue. It, it, doing what it takes to build up unity, making that a priority, pursuing it, requires a willingness to give of ourselves, to, to set our desires aside for the sake of others. It's not easy. But it's what we need to pursue. It's worth struggling for. We must pursue this, in it, this unity through a struggle. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity. Paul's displayed this much of an idea as we've worked our way through the first verse and the beginning of the second. Still, corporate unity needs more than just our straining to hold things together. That's why we need the next part of the idea as we keep building our thoughts. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity through doctrinal clarity. Through doctrinal clarity. What we need to understand is our union in love is not an end in itself. Rather, it has a goal. It is a goal that Paul actually reaches all the way at the end of the sentence, and, and we're not there yet. We're not to the ultimate goal. Yet, even before Paul can express the, the goal in our union, he focuses on the things that, that bound our union, union create a, a, a boundary around our efforts, create a boundary for our struggles. Not all struggles are good struggles. Our struggles need a boundary. And that boundary, what, what bounds our efforts to serve the ultimate goal, is understanding and knowledge. 
He says, attaining all the wealth that comes from full understanding. There's an understanding here. There's a knowledge resulting in true knowledge of God's mystery. Last week, Paul mentioned the mystery in verse 27 of chapter 1. And I discussed that in the New Testament, this word mystery, when Paul uses it, is referring to, to that which was hidden in the mind of God until God revealed it. Specifically, Paul's referring to the New Testament church when he uses that word. Not only was the New Testament church not revealed prior to God revealing it through Paul, there was no way anybody could know about it. No one could envision the New Testament church. God had to reveal it, and and it was largely to and through Paul that God did so. Yes, he also revealed through some of the other apostles, John and Peter and so forth, but Paul is the one who most has the revelation of the New Testament because through Paul is where God really reveals that Gentiles and Jews are united together. Well, the corporate unity that's worth struggling for is the corporate unity of the church. But the church can only truly exist as God has revealed it is supposed to be. It cannot just be what we imagine it would be, or something that we would consider good. It has to be what God has revealed. Here's what the church is. We must have clarity around God's revelation, what what we call doctrinal clarity. Notice Paul writes here, full assurance of understanding. There is something less than full assurance. There is something that's less than genuine knowledge. Not everything is full assurance. Not everything is true knowledge, genuine knowledge. There's less than that. Full assurance, genuine knowledge, that only comes from God. It's based on what God has revealed. That is what I'm calling doctrinal clarity. A clear comprehension of of what God has revealed in His Word to us. That is the the boundary that, that defines corporate unity. I'm beating on this drum. I'm emphasizing this point. I know I'm doing that, but I'm doing that intentionally because we live in an age that that does not celebrate doctrinal clarity. We live in an age that celebrates doctrinal fuzziness. We like things to be hazy and unclear. Our age has placed the idea of unity at odds with clarity saying the two cannot coexist, claiming that that unity can be achieved only if we set aside doctrine and we unite around the idea of love. But that becomes fuzzy. Our age tells us that clear doctrine actually severs unity. But that claim of our age is wrong. It's wrong. The, The kind of unity that God intends, the the kind of unity worth struggling for, it can only come through doctrinal clarity. Only through that. Let me say that again. Unity can only come through doctrinal clarity. I'm guessing that that most of us sitting here this, this this morning are either nodding our heads or at least mentally in agreement with the statement. I expect that. Yet I'm not really convinced that, that we all completely comprehend or, or that we all genuinely agree with the statement. In one sense, we know the statement is right, that, that, that unity can only come through doctrinal clarity. 
Yet I'm not sure we really comprehend or actually totally agree. And I say that because I know how quickly many of us can get worked up over all kinds of things that have nothing to do with, with doctrine, but they happen to step on one of our favorite traditions. That we get all worked up over and passionate about. And yet when it comes to doctrinal deviation, we get very unexcited about that. One of the things that, that comes from being with the same group of believers for many years, like I have been now, let's be honest, I've been here a long time. Uh, one thing that comes from that is I have a pretty comprehensive understanding of our church. And from time to time, I've heard members praising gatherings. I really don't want to use the term church, even though these gatherings would use the term church. I don't want to use the term, term church because when you use doctrinal clarity, they're not a church. They're a gathering of people. But I've heard members praise these gatherings because of things like they have choirs that, that sing music that this person really enjoys. And they do it well. And because of the music produced, the, the person wants to hold this gathering up as, as a model of, of excellence that, that we should strive to emulate. As I said, the problem is this gathering is not a valid church. I can think of a couple of cases where the model group that's been, been, been held up teaches rank heresy, gospel-destroying messages rather than true gospel messages. I, I won't name the specific groups because I really don't want to embarrass anybody in our church here today. Rather, my, my goal is to warn all of us that while we may nod our heads along with the idea that, that corporate unity must be built on doctrinal clarity, that means that we have to resist the impact that the things have on our emotions and consider the doctrinal message at the core. We have to be precise and practice discernment. We must call error, error, and heresy, heresy. And we must willingly give up all those things that oppose truth while clinging to the things that uphold truth regardless of our personal feelings. In fact, we need to work hard to train our personal feelings to align with doctrine rather than emotion. Folks, that is as uncultural as we can get today. But we must do that. One of the things that has most excited me this past year is the number of people participating in our book club at the moment. I, I've been having a book club for years, as, as you, most of you know, where we pick a book and we just read it together and then we have a Zoom call and talk about it. Well, the book we're reading right now has the largest group that our book club has ever had, and the book we're reading is a systematic theology. That means it's a book that's designed to help us have doctrinal clarity, and we have a lot of people in church reading it. They're, I'm excited because that means there's a lot of people the largest group so far that I've had reading book that are seeking to grow in doctrinal clarity. And that really needs to be the goal of all of us because our unity must come through doctrinal clarity. 
We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity through doctrinal clarity. As I said, doctrinal clarity, it gives the bounds. It creates the boundary lines for our unity. That then thus guides our struggle. Unity is the purpose of our struggle. Doctrinal clarity gives us the boundary for our unity. Yet, as I said, all of this has an ultimate goal. And it's the ultimate goal that Paul completes the sentence that that we're looking at this morning. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity through doctrinal clarity leading to Christological joy. Christological joy. Look at the last word of verse 2. Christ. To punch it, the New American Standard adds the word himself, but Paul wraps up that portion with the word Christ. Christ is the true knowledge of God's mystery. Christ is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ. Christ. He is the ultimate goal of all that Paul does. Therefore, Christ is the ultimate goal of all that we do. Christ is where we find our joy. Christological joy. Now, I considered writing Christ-focused instead of Christological. I know Christological sounds real academic, uh, too academic, and, and I try not to throw academic out too often, but it's not a hard word. It's a word that means the study of Christ. And the reason I picked this instead of Christ-focused is, you know, we can be focused on Christ and never be near Christ. We just keep walking around Christ. He's there, he's our center, we want to look him, but we're not getting near him. Christological means the study of Christ. We cannot study Christ without getting near Christ. We want to know who he is, we want to know what he has done, we want to know him. Christological means comprehending both the person and the work of Christ. That is where we find the hidden treasure that brings true joy in our lives. One commentator called verse 3 the Christological high point of this letter. Paul has been focusing on the person and the work of Christ from the beginning on. Paul's written about the rescue mission that God sent Christ to undertake. He, he told us that Christ is one who redeems us by the forgiveness of our sins. Christ has been preeminent over the old creation. Christ's been preeminent over the new creation. Christ, Christ, Christ. He's been talking about Christ. But now he writes that it is in Christ himself that we find the true knowledge of God's mystery. It is in Christ himself that we discover the hidden treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Our greatest discoveries come as we gain an awareness of what we have because we are in Christ. There's a reason that that Paul refers to Christ as treasure. For, For just a moment, turn to Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2 is wisdom literature. It is designed to know us what is wisdom. Solomon, who wrote Proverbs, he begins Proverbs 2 with these words. He says, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom. Incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, Lift your voice for understanding. 
If you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And he preserves the way of his godly ones. Now flip back to Colossians. Remember, Paul is steeped in the Old Testament. He is Old Testament scholar extraordinaire. And what we see is Paul is reflecting the Old Testament wisdom tradition by by labeling wisdom and knowledge as treasures. Wisdom and knowledge are precious things. They're worth, worth finding. There are jewels to be sought after. They are something worth seeking. Now let me ask you. Have you ever found something that you considered precious? Think about trying to hide a present for a young child in a room. Hide something that you know the child wants and tell the child that's in this room and then set the child in that room and say, go find it, go look for it. How will the child act when that present is discovered? We can anticipate jumping up and down, right? I found it, I found it, I found it. I'm excited, I've got it. Certainly joy accompanies, accompanies the discovery of something that we consider a treasure. Well, to a similar but greater degree, joy accompanies finding the treasures hidden in Christ. Yet to find those treasures, we must grow in our knowledge of God's mystery. His revelation of the church, which is the body of Christ. We must understand the church more to find the treasure of, the treasure of Christ. We must comprehend more fully who Christ is. We must ascertain more completely what Christ has done for us. We must grasp more deeply that that by faith we are in Christ. In other words, we must become increasingly Christological in our understanding and knowledge. As this occurs... As we become increasingly Christological, we discover that Christ is the treasure of greatest joy, superseding everything. Ultimately, the struggle that we have for all believers should lead us to Christological joy, Christ. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity through doctrinal clarity, leading to Christological joy. We finally completed our full idea this morning. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity through doctrinal clarity, leading to Christological joy. I said it's rather lengthy. But it summarizes what Paul gives us here. At the outset, I mentioned the joy that Miriam has even being sick, struggling with her her sickness because she knows that sickness is leading toward the birth of her baby. Do we have a similar but greater joy regarding the struggles that we face as we serve Christ because we know that our struggles in Christian ministry ultimately lead us to Christological joy. The more we struggle serving Christ, the more we struggle for Christ, the more we will come to know Christ. Before I finish this morning, I'm going to ask you, do a self-assessment. We've developed this idea on the screen this morning from Paul's testimony about his own ministry. Examine yourself. What is your testimony? 
Let's measure ourselves. Let's measure the ministry efforts we're putting forth for Christ against this idea. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity through doctrinal clarity leading to Christological joy. How are we doing? Let's pick it apart. We struggle for all believers. Are you struggling for other believers? Is there real struggle on your half, uh, on, your, uh, on your part, on behalf of others? Are you struggling Effort. Are you putting forth effort for others? Is it for people you like? Or is it for all believers simply because they are in Christ? You are struggling on their behalf if you can. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity. Where does corporate unity fit into your scheme of priorities? Do you care about corporate unity? Do you struggle to maintain it? Is, is unity what drives you to serve others? Because you want to have unity and love with other believers. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity through doctrinal clarity. What role does doctrine play in your life? Do emotions serve to drive your affections or does doctrine override your emotions? Are you working to grow in your doctrinal understanding? So that that doctrine serves as the boundary for your unity. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity through doctrinal clarity leading to Christological joy. Are you studying Christ? Are you discovering His treasures? The, the wisdom and knowledge that's found in Christ alone. Have you experienced the joy that comes from discovering Him more and more this past week. You know him more fully now than you did a week ago and your joy is larger because of it. We struggle for all believers to pursue corporate unity through doctrinal clarity leading to Christological joy. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that today you would help all of us to examine ourselves. To examine that we are struggling as we ought. We are seeking unity. We're bounded by doctrinal clarity because we are joy-filled of what we've received in Christ. May that be who we are. And as that is who we are, may we impact this world around us for Christ, magnifying our Savior to those who need to have this. May we be struggling on behalf of those that we do not even know personally. And those that you put in our life to know personally. Father, may we simply seek to serve Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.